A flurry of news this week, hitting on all our favorite topics, election security, data breaches, hacker sentencing, and more. We're also going to talk to one of my CIT portfolio companies, Vince Chrysler of Dark Cubed. The cyber stays active as always. Let's talk about it all. Welcome to Securiosity. And here we are with Securiosity for September 27th. I'm Greg Otto. And I'm Jen O'Daniel. Another week packed with news. And we're going to be all about it. We're also going to talk to Vince Chrysler, co-founder of Dark Cube. The company is doing some really interesting things to help small and medium-sized businesses with their cybersecurity. We all know that cybersecurity can be a weak point if it even exists at a small or medium-sized company. So we'll talk to Vince on how the customers are working to protect themselves. But first, there is a bunch of stuff to talk about. So, Jen, let's get to it. A voting tabulator used to count ballots in more than half of the U.S., has a decade-old flaw that leaves it vulnerable to hacking, according to a report published Thursday by security researchers. The M650 machine, made by election systems and software, could be compromised using a flawed software updating procedure to infect it with malicious code, according to the report from the Voting Village at DEF CON. The flaw was one of the several found by security researchers dissecting voting equipment at the conference in Vegas in August. So we've been expecting this report for some time. What's the reaction been like? So the reaction that I've seen so far to the report, it's interesting because it seems like it's more the same almost. These are just both sides fighting again. I mean, we've talked to the DEF CON voting village. We talked to them out in Vegas and we've talked to ESNS as well. Um, again, this is just more the same. It's a lot of fighting over what we've all been fighting over, that these election systems are vulnerable and that even though it's not practical in terms of a threat model, they're still vulnerable. So when specifically the M650 machine, uh, the report says that the M650 machine was updated and is still updated if it is being used by a zip disk. I can't tell you the last a time I, I can't even tell you the last time I saw a zip disk. I think wow. a zip disk is older than both of my cars combined. <laughs> like I don't I, I I literally couldn't tell you where I could buy a zip disk. I don't even know if you can find them on I don't eBay. think you can. So did ESNS sort of walk back some of their thoughts on the voting village? Well, not so much the voting village, but they said with this machine that, look, we don't service these machines. We stopped making them in 2008, which, okay, I get it. But there are some reports that say these machines were used in the 2016 election. So not great. Really not great that even up until 2016, a machine with a zip disk to update it was being used like... I don't care if it's an election machine, computer, whatever it is that's connected to the internet. We can stop using dis- zip disks. It's okay. Like, <laughs> it, we, we have the technology to move forward. So, um, yeah, like, look, th- this is a lot of what we've been talking about for the past three months is that these machines are vulnerable. There needs to be money divvied out to the states and the election vendors. Everybody needs to wake up and sort of in a holistic sense of cybersecurity, everybody needs to do what they need to do to make sure that in 2020 and in elections further, we have a little bit more protections than what we have right now. Change is hard. I still miss my BlackBerry. <laughs> so in other news, Uber will pay $148 million across all 50 states and Washington, D.C. as part of a settlement stemming from their mega data breach that revealed sensitive information on 57 million 
of the customer's users. The data breach caused a firestorm around the company when it was announced last November, particularly the fact that the company sat on it for a year. Uh, the company fired its then chief security officer and his deputy for their roles in keeping the hack from the public for more than a year. Jen, do you think this is a believable act of contrition? My data is only worth three dollars. <laughs> yeah, I mean, it's, I mean, not even three dollars. Right. It's so. Do you are you happy with the settlement from a company perspective, or do you think this is just a okay? Here's the check that we need to have to have this go away, and ha ha ha, we can go back to reforming Uber and and making it a company that people don't despise. I mean, I think it. This all just goes back to these are just small settlements, right? And and it, what's the value here? Is it cheaper just to, on occasion, pay that $148 million or whatever it's going to be? Or is it cheaper to actually fix your security? And beyond the paycheck, I think that it's interesting to look at what some of the states have required Uber to do and whether these states are going to follow up on that. Like, there needs to be independent security checks. There needs to be a lot more outreach. There needs to be just a better effort from Uber when it comes to security in the future. Now, they've revamped their C-suite. Matt Olson, who we've talked about on this show before, is now their chief trust right. officer. I believe it is title. If it's not, he's he's tied Something to security like somewhere. Sure. So uh, they, I, I think that they're moving forward a little bit more than just writing a check and saying no, but still, or not saying no, but saying, okay, we will we'll do whatever it is that you know you want us to do please let us operate in, in your state um so it's a step forward and they were going to have to pay this some something out because all of these class action lawsuits would have been way more than 148 million dollars so to break it up like that okay but tbd on whether they hit all of the benchmarks that they need to hit when it comes as far as like compliance and check-ins with all of these states yeah, I mean, I guess we'll see. So VPN filter may have been uncovered, but it looks like it's been a lot more dangerous than we thought. Among the newly discovered capabilities of VPN filter are the ability to exploit endpoint devices via compromised network gear, plus data filtering and multiple encrypted tunneling capabilities to mask command and control and data exploitation traffic. The botnet had the ability to brick or disable hundreds of thousands of devices. U.S. law enforcement urgently sought to raise awareness of and mitigate the threat. Greg, so what does this mean? Uh, it means that the FBI's actions earlier this year saved us a lot more trouble, saved us, saved any internet-connected community uh, a lot more trouble. Look, this VPN filter was obviously tied to nation-states. We... <laughs> think that it's Russia. It's, it's been pretty well corroborated that VPN filter was Russia. And look, this is dangerous stuff. It, it allows for destructive attacks. It allows for obfuscation. And again, it allows for data exfil. That seems to be a pretty wide ranging and powerful weapon. Good on Cisco for discovering this and keeping up with the research that went into it because it shows what are the nation states are capable of and good on the FBI for shutting this down and making sure that we didn't have another wanna cry and we didn't have another not petcha on our hands. Um, 
you know, we talk a lot about the incidents that we see, but this is one incident, again, where we stopped something in its tracks that could have been a lot more damaging than the attacks that we're still talking about in Sir. terms of, like, wanna cry and uh, not patch it. So are any devices bricked in this process? So I don't know that any of the... I don't know what happened in June off the top of my head. I remember that they were found on routers basically as like implants. Where Got it. if Russia wanted to flip the switch, they could have flipped the switch and caused a lot of damage. But we found it in time and made sure that nothing happens. And everybody was given the heads up that they should change what is sitting on the routers, which leads us into our next story. Fitting in with that, a large majority of Wi-Fi routers in U.S. homes and offices are vulnerable to cyber attacks because their firmware isn't updated frequently enough. This comes from a new study by the nonprofit American Consumer Institute and their Center for Citizen Research. They found that 83% of routers are inadequately updated, and among the risks include theft of information, attacks that commandeer IoT devices, and having more devices co-opted into botnets. The study was completed in response, of course, to the VPN filter incident that occurred earlier this year. So Jen, this is how basic cyber hygiene fits into the greater threat model, right? It, it does, right? So I will admit that I had a, um, a router in my home that was, you know, five or six years old. It probably wasn't getting updated. Um, so I think that's, that's pretty typical. Right. And it's again, I think we talked about this when it happened. It's on the telecom providers or where you get your routers from. Because right. honestly, yeah. so let's talk about that router. Did you buy that router at Best Buy yourself or was it given to you by your internet provider? Internet provider. Right. Um, and I do the same thing as well, but I'm smart enough to, I shouldn't say I'm, sm <laughs> I'm not smart enough to do it on my own, but I'm smart enough to Google. Let's put it that way. I'm smart enough right. to Google the directions in order to how to change stuff to make that router more secure. Because I'm sure if you go home and look on your router, because I know it's like that on my router, the, the password to the firmware is right there on the device. It is, and so, I've changed it. Um, but I think most people don't change it. Right. And most people don't replace these things as often as they should. Right. So, I mean, this study talks about exactly what we've been talking about when it comes in terms of VPN filter and how consumers work with this stuff. Look at your router. If it's an right. old blue Linksys box router that you've been hanging around for a decade, you probably want to mess around with it and see if you can change something. Or if not, go spend the 65 bucks to go get a new Netgear router at Best Buy or Staples or anything but remember, Netgear stops doing um, updates too, so you can't just rely on that. Right. So, yes, it works perfectly back to the cyber hygiene point that it's not only on your telecom providers or the companies that you buy your routers from. It's also upon you. Help, help yourself out. Just take the 10 minutes to figure out how to change some of that stuff, and you'll be safer in the process. So former NSA employee Niha Fo was sentenced to 66 months in prison Tuesday for taking home highly classified NSA hacking tools between 2010 and 2015. Fo pleaded guilty in December to one count of removal and retention of national defense information. The sentence is longer than one given to another contractor, Reality Winner, who was arrested after leaking a classified report on Russian hacking aimed at the 2016 election. Winner was sentenced in August to 63 months in prison. Greg, you were in the courtroom for this. Give us some more details. So it was really interesting because the government was very adamant in their argument that 
Foe should be sentenced for the eight years that they were going for. Uh, they felt this way because they wanted to use it as a deterrent to make sure that things like this don't happen anymore. They specifically pointed to the fact that this was not just necessarily stuff that was leaked to the media, and this was also highly, highly classified information. We're talking about hacking tools that were used inside sure. Tau. So um, part of what made it so interesting was there was a victim impact statement, which is basically a letter written to the court from former NSA director Mike Rogers, basically saying, this was bad. This was really, really bad. This set us back, and we need to have uh, the highest sentence possible for this. Now, on the flip side, Foe had a lot of character witnesses from his family speak on his behalf, which I found to be really interesting, including the fact that a gentleman who is his personal friend, who came to court that day, they made it a point to say that that gentleman's father had died that morning, and instead of going to take care of his father and, 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 and deal with you know the, the heavy grief that comes with that, he decided to speak on his friend's behalf to make sure that he spoke to the character of this guy, which, look, th th this happens all the time. I, I just found it to be very... I, 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 it honestly resonated with me in the fact that he was, this gentleman was like, look, this guy is a pillar of his community. He's a patriot. He did not do this willingly. He did not do this maliciously. This was due to the fact that he was trying to better his life, that he was trying to get promotions. And look, he made a mistake, but he's not, he's not reality winner. He's not David Petraeus. He's a family man. He's a man of good character and he made a mistake, which... Honestly, I think it weighed on the judge a little bit, too. And it wasn't just one time, right? There's a five-year span here, so he did it over and over again. Right, and that was something that the government hammered home as well, that this was not just a mistake in, like, he blew through a stop sign because he was too tired or something like this. He was aware of what he was doing. or Not that he was necessarily fully aware, because I will say that the one thing that struck me as well was photo does not have a great grasp of the English language. And that is striking to me because you are at the highest levels of the intelligence community and you are dealing with something that is amazingly technical. We speak perfect English all the time and, and we have trouble really communicating. And we, I mean collectively, not you sure. and Jen. Sure, no. Uh, collectively expressing the importance of these tools. So how is somebody that is a naturalized citizen but is clearly coming at it from having English as a second language dealing with this and really understanding the grasp of what he's supposed to do when it comes to handling classified material and communicating you know what he's all about. Like it, it, it really strikes me that was that was really a detriment to him and partly the reason why I don't think he grasped the gravity of continuing to take home this highly classified information to work on at home. I mean, I really honestly believe from the comments and reading over the case, this was a guy who was just trying to do some extra work at home to better himself. Yes, it was a great mistake, but... I mean, it's classified data from the NSA. It's not like... It's not... 
like he's working on something that you and I work on that, okay, it's not as important as important as this. I I mean, I in in all these cases, max sentence for all of them. I mean, as far as I'm concerned, it's treason. It's you you're stealing, essentially stealing our classified secrets. See, I don't regardless know regardless of what the intention is. So I don't Don't no, take it home. I so yes, and do not take it home. I don't for the life of me, I don't think that he legitimately understood that. And I, 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 I... Well, and then I kind of question who hired him yes, and how and, that did that's didn't... what I'm getting at. I, yeah. It, it has been very clear that even though with this amount of technical background that he has and him serving in this elite level, there's some knowledge there. There's obviously some knowledge there on some highly coveted knowledge on what to do when it comes to building and deploying these tools. But I, I was just so struck by the fact that this guy does not have a grasp on the English language and it served to his downfall. I really think that yeah. there's a lot there. And it's just such his, a basic, I mean, it's just, it's, it's like the most basic his, fundamental thing of so, working intelligence community is that you keep classified data classified right these are cleared facilities you don't leave without stuff you can't bring your cell phones in i mean there's so many elements here it should be just obvious right i i i totally agree with you all i'm saying is i can't get around how he was fully trusted with this information when there was clearly a language well, barrier that yeah. he was not overcoming i i i just don't understand it it, it clearly struck the judge that despite that, and even with his character flaws and the work that he did, that they weren't going to give him the max sentence. I really thought for a while there that they were going to give him the max sentence. Yeah, I mean, it's 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 interesting, but I just think we have to make examples out of everybody in this because it's so important to our security. Okay, onward. So, the data gathered by Department of Homeland Security drones patrolling the border is vulnerable to hackers and insider threats, according to a lengthy Inspector General's investigation. DHS's increased use of drones hasn't come with sufficient security measures to protect that data, the IG has said. Among the findings were that over 20 unauthorized removable media devices, such as USBs and smartphones, were connected to the IT systems that share DHS drone data. Use of such removable media significantly increases the exposure of sensitive systems to compromise. Jen, sounds like all those drones are no different than the insecure routers that we were talking about. You know, look, it's a new technology, and we don't have the right protocols in place for any of this stuff yet, and it's just something that we need to, to get better at. Also, going back to what we were just talking about, this seems, again, like some pretty basic government cyber hygiene. Don't use USBs and don't use smartphones on these same networks that these drone data like this drone data is being shared i have to imagine that there's a classification level on this drone data like if i went and foia it i don't think that i'm going to get it back from the foia office them saying yeah it's unclassified yeah sure whatever this is national security interest so i'm sure there's a level of classification there so it's being shared on the same network where you're plugging in usbs and letting smartphones connect to well you know you kind of have to wonder if um you know, if they have all of the, the pieces they need to, to, to run these drones, are they plugging in their own smartphones because they need to operate them from their own smartphones? Yeah, I mean, it's, it is a new technology, but I still think that even though it's a new technology, it should abide by the basic cyber hygiene. Oh, I, I, I agree with has. you. You know, I think we're, you know, we continuously see 
um, drone software companies, right, that are, are trying to make it more secure. And I think it's just there's not um, a, a system in place yet. Maybe one day. So this happened late last week, and we didn't get to cover it, but a bug in Twitter's account activity API inadvertently leaked sensitive data to other developers, including direct messages and protected tweets. The bug, which ran from May 2017 until September 10th, 2018, required a complex series of technical circumstances to occur and impacted less than 1% of Twitter users. Were you one of those users, Greg? No, uh, I was not, probably because a lot of this was tied to people's use with brands and the last thing I want to do on Twitter is engage with brands so I, I don't think that uh, I, so I was not one of these users affected by this at all you're not getting but, all your fashion news from Twitter no I, I, I definitely pass on that um, <laughs> but no it was still pretty staggering to see them kind of say like oh well that's life what happened. Yeah. yeah that's life that's what happens with your DMs and that's what happens at Twitter, it just goes to show that, look, as a journalist, I use DMs a lot. DMs uh, are definitely part of reaching out to sources and stuff like this makes me think twice about doing it. Like it is not signal, it's not encrypted. Even though it's easy, it's a security versus convenience thing that even security-minded journalists like myself go, oh, well, okay, that that's, you know, heads up, be careful with yeah. your DMs because you never know, they could be, sent to developers in third-party software that help airlines deal with people that yell about their tickets or seats on Twitter or something like that. Like, pass. I, I want no parts of that. I, I don't want them ever yeah, but what are you really mistakenly seeing my DMs. Yeah, but what are you really DMing that you really care about? I mean, I don't use Twitter DMing for anything that's important. I don't, maybe other people do. Yeah, no, I, I definitely think, <laughs> hey, there are tons of stories out there about what goes on in DMs. I'm not going to get into that. Apparently, I lead a really That's, boring life. Right. That, that <laughs> is, you know, but that is the reason why stuff like this would should make people go, mm, maybe I'll just stick to iMessage. Or something like yeah, that. Yeah, let's move on to the fun stuff. So, okay, yeah, there was a lot of funding news this week, so let's break it all down, Jen. First up, a company this week based in the UK, Sneak, announced a 22 million Series B raise for a service that watches repositories on sites like GitHub, Bitbucket, and GitLab and alerts customers to security holes in the code they're using from those platforms. The company's research team maintains a database of vulnerabilities and helps customers patch those flaws. Another raise, uh, one of the smaller raises this week, Source Defense announced that it's raised $10 million in Series A for its product that promises to protect websites from supply chain risks posed by third-party tools. The Israeli company's product sits on a customer's website and automatically monitors access and permissions of third-party apps. This brings up things like MageCart. Sounds like no, a great idea. Yeah, several yeah. recent payment Data breaches have been attributed to MageCart, which exploits a lot of this third-party data that we're talking about. Think the JavaScript that companies place mm -hmm. on their sites. Um, in bigger raises, Nozomi Networks, a cybersecurity company that focuses on industrial control systems, raised $30 million in Series C funding. The company says that it's seen rapid growth since its last funding round and is protecting hundreds of thousands of devices across several sectors. And the big one this week, Darktrace, announced a $50 million Series E funding round and claimed a valuation of $1.65 billion. 
doubling its valuation from its last funding round. The company has a suite of AI-enabled threat detection products that cover enterprise networks, cloud environments, and software as a service apps. Jen, that's a lot of money floating around. What do you think about some of these raises? So I always think the earlier money is more interesting. So the Series A for source defense, right? I mean, what, that's a problem that's been in the news for us for weeks and weeks that they're solving. So that's kind of exciting. Um, and then, of course, protecting industrial control systems is is really one of my favorites. Yeah, the sneak one is interesting to me because, look, it's a dirty little secret that's not really a dirty little secret in that GitHub, Bitbucket, GitLab, and even I'd go so far as to say Stack Exchange. Everybody's, from a development standpoint, when you have a problem from a development standpoint, you're out there Googling it. Yeah, you are, for sure. You're Googling for code, you're Googling for answers, and if Google doesn't give it to you, you're going to go to GitHub. If GitHub doesn't give it to you, you're going to check GitLab or Bitbucket. And that's just the way that code works. You take code that works, and you don't necessarily know if it's secure. So if it works, it works. And you ship that code, and you want to deploy it because you want your service working. So if there's somebody watching over that code, that's a big lift for not just security developers, but for developers, period. So if you have this company that's watching over all of this open code that's out there, I, I think that that is a really interesting business model and a really interesting product for, again, not just security companies, but any development company overall because you want your products to stay safe no matter what the code is that is, you know, underlying everything that you use. It'll be interesting to see how this all sort of shakes out in the next five years as we see um, companies that are doing sort of the same thing over and over again get funded. Uh, But the Dark Trace, $1.65 billion, it's crazy. Yeah, I mean, and I know a couple people at Dark Trace, and I've talked to them before, but I'm really interested to see how this grows because the minute you start talking about AI or machine learning or anything that is sort of like the next-gen tech, some people's eyes, you know, roll into the back of their heads and they'd rather talk about anything else. So, I and I get that because I get it a lot from PR people as well. But look, somebody is obviously buying into this. You, you don't become a $1.65 billion valuation company without having a product that is doing something right. So uh, I'm very interested to see if you know, there's going to be another round or if Dark Trace really starts to take off or we even see them start to go public. I mean, I imagine the next step is is to go public at some point. Um, and also, I think you're going to see a couple AI-enabled threat detection products in my next Mach 37 class. Interesting. Yeah, there's a lot of those out there. Okay, so now under interview with Vince, um, really fun interview talking about his work and how his past inside government has influenced the work he's doing today. Check it out. Joining us today is Vince Chrysler, CEO of Dark Cubes, one of my Gap portfolio companies. Vince, thanks for joining us. Thanks for having me. Excited to be here. Hey, tell us more about um, Dark Cube and how you got into the space. Yeah, so Dark Cube is a company focused on solving what I think is one of the most significant business problems today, which is the fact that over 99% of the companies that exist have no way to afford or implement cybersecurity the way it's being sold. So given my past, I've had, uh, I've had a lot of experience at the White House and the Pentagon and Department of Homeland Security. Most folks with that experience go towards the enterprise market where there are big tickets and sophisticated technologies. 
it's driven me the other way to say if we can't if we can solve this mid-market small business problem then we're protecting the large companies because those are the vendors suppliers partners uh, supply chain companies uh, as a part of our economy so what particularly are you helping out with those small to medium sized companies funnel it down a little bit what exactly are it's a great okay. question you know most companies I think 71% of the companies out there have a firewall and probably antivirus. And we know, based on fact of what we've seen, that is not enough. Unfortunately, there's a huge gap between having a firewall, having antivirus, and then having the next level of security capability. And the next level of security capability often looks like collecting and aggregating logs, having a SIM tool, having automation, having analysts. And that next level is out of reach for most companies. And so what we've done is we've taken a look at what are the capabilities that you get out of implementing all of that infrastructure? And how do we repackage them and deliver them in a different way so it's affordable and accessible to these small and mid-sized companies? So we're looking at technologies of how do we collect data in a very, very simple, streamlined, low-friction way? How do we do uh, enterprise-grade threat analytics and predictive analytics on that traffic without asking anything of those small and mid-sized companies? How do we present it in a way that if they want to interact with the data they can, they can get the benefits of a SIM tool without all the cost, complexity, and noise? And then more importantly, how do we build an automation? So you can turn on DarkCube, you can get threat intelligence analytics, you can get blocking right back into your firewall, and you don't even have to lift a finger. Interesting. So the automation part is something that is interesting to me from the standpoint of a workforce question. When you are talking to these small to medium-sized businesses, what do their security apparatuses look like in terms of how many people they're dealing with? Because I would imagine that these businesses, they don't have a CIO, CTO, CISO. Nope. So how do you see that functioning inside companies at this level? In most cases, it's non-existent. And we're talking your financial advisor, the car dealership, your law firm, your cardiologist. They have nobody that understands cybersecurity. So our, our way to, to the market and our way to support these companies is actually working with their managed service provider, not okay. their managed security service provider. There are a lot of folks thinking about this managed security service provider market. What we found is, is the folks that are providing the desktops, maybe managing the firewall for these guys, installing office, doing the basic IT functionality, want to offer security services to these businesses. But again, they have a talent shortage as well. So we can come in and partner with a managed service provider, give their customer enhanced security capabilities at a fraction of the cost and complexity of everything else in the market, and everybody wins. So switching gears, you released um, a 2018 State of Internet of Things security report. Tell us yep. a little bit about why you did that. Yeah, so as, as a part of our, our role and mission in protecting these small and mid-sized companies, we, we've seen an increasing amount of attacks coming from Internet of Things devices. So we're seeing our customers being attacked by digital video recorders and webcams and all of these other things from across the globe. And it was one of those things that just kind of had us say, huh, it was kind of a, a in the back of our head. We did some analysis on this about a year ago. And we said, well, let's just go to Walmart and Best Buy and Target and buy off the shelf and plug it in and instrument that network with Dark Cubed and see what's happening. You know, a lot of security folks will, will look at IoT devices and tear them apart or try to hack them. If you can touch a device, you can own it. So that's not interesting to me. Okay. But it, what's interesting to me is when I plug in a light bulb or a switch or a smart outlet or a video camera, what is it doing? And what sort of risk does that create to me? And so that was the genesis of this study. How did you pick the devices that you used? 
<laughs> it was pretty random. You, you, I, we just walked into Walmart and, and there's a big display case and grabbed a couple light bulb. We grabbed a light bulb, a couple smart outlets, an indoor outlet, an outdoor outlet, a bunch of video cameras. What we tried to do was, you know, what would the typical consumer do when they go to Walmart and buy? And, you know, th there's a distinction here. At the end of the display case in Walmart, there's a glass case that's locked up that has the Nest and the Ring and these other things. Uh, we didn't buy those devices. What we said is right around the corner is a display case of instead of the $150 camera, the $40 camera, the $7 light bulb, the $14 switch. Got it. Yeah, and I, I wondered that, that because, of course, yeah. I have Nest and Ring yeah. And, yeah. and all that stuff. Yeah, do you find that these small and medium businesses are embracing that as well? Because I feel like, look, when you talk about bigger enterprises, bigger yeah. enterprises are always trying to forward their business. And they yeah. have that CTO role. They yeah. have somebody that's forward thinking. And you start to see the IoT work its way inside an enterprise. Small and medium businesses, obviously, everybody's yeah. doing a whole bunch of different stuff. So they don't have yeah. that time to be forward looking. So I'm wondering how much embrace of IoT that you're seeing at the small and medium business level. I don't know if I have a, a great answer for that. I guess what I would say is maybe maybe I'm a bad business person, but we didn't do this study to advance our company, right? This this wasn't a hey, I can do this IoT study and it's going to really help me sell Dark Cube. This was more a what do these devices look like and let's just pull that thread and that thread ended up getting longer and longer. So I think there's more implications for me on the consumer market and, and certainly there's probably some crossover where a small business owner may buy these devices. Um, so, so again, the purpose of this not wasn't necessarily advertising marketing for Dark Cube. It was more, you know, we pulled the thread and then we started to see what we saw. And as security security experts in a larger community, we felt a responsibility to give back to this community and say, hey, this is what we saw. And, and there's no benefit really to us to doing this, but we want to contribute this thought back into the larger community because there, there's got to be something done about this problem. So with the way that security is set up in these devices, or should we say lack of it, it feels like sometimes. Um, what are the specific threats that you're seeing more of? Because look, we all know about Mirai and how that's yeah. proliferated. But is there anything else that you see besides just botnets and using them for DDoS attacks? Is it something where you're seeing data being pulled off these machines because the data isn't encrypted? Yeah. Or is it something else that we're not thinking about? What are you seeing? It's all the above. I've, I've paid attention to IoT security over the years. It's something that, you know, I, I, like most security experts, I've seen reports on, I've seen studies. I, I wouldn't say I've necessarily been fascinated by the topic. As we started to do this study, I got more and more concerned because, you know, take an example of a smart light bulb that we bought off the shelf of Walmart for $8. That light bulb will turn on and off and dim, and it does very little communication. It, it only communicated to a couple of servers. Everything was unencrypted, but it's just a light bulb. What was concerning, and I hadn't really considered this before I did the study, is in order to use that light bulb, you have to install an application. That application is made by a Chinese company. That application has location control. It has the ability to read and write settings on your phone. It has some permissions that the Android developers say third parties shouldn't use because it can steal passwords from your phone with an overlay. And that Android app itself that you're carrying in your pocket everywhere is communicating with servers in China. It is sending usernames and passwords to the queue that allows you to turn the light bulb on and off in the clear. So we were actually able to write a, I think it was a five or six long Python script where I logged into a remote server and I could watch every time I turned my light bulb on and off from a, from a different server because of that information leakage. So I, I think, you know, if I go to the next step, it's not just about are these devices vulnerable or not. I think what we found is there's a systemic issue where these companies are not thinking about security at all. 
and there's nobody holding them accountable. Consumers don't know enough to, to figure that out. Retailers don't care. You know, if they're confronted with two video cameras, and, and we saw this on the shelves at Walmart, one video camera was $2 more expensive than the other. The one that was $2 more expensive was, was really well implemented and pretty secure. The other one was, you know, I call a dumpster fire. You know, you could see every video coming off of it. You could see every, every picture. It was sending usernames and passwords. The passwords were hashed, but with an MD5 hash with no salt. So some very basic things that nobody, had, nobody, nobody with a security background had looked at that device. And Walmart doesn't care. They're like, oh, the $2, $2 cheaper, it's better for our consumers. Right? And so th there are a bunch of systemic problems here. If I, if I put on my tinfoil hat, <laughs> and, sure. and, I, and I, I used to be a little bit more reserved about this as we were getting started on the report, but now afterwards, I'm, I'm much more what I call radicalized by this. You know, we are deploying the largest sensor grid in the history of the world with, with consumer IoT. Okay. Every, every consumer, every device, houses are going to have 5, 10, 15 of these devices. These devices are manufactured in China, which we're not going to be able to change just because of the, the pricing of economics. But many of these devices, the firmware is written in China, the platforms are managed by Chinese companies, and the Android applications are developed by Chinese companies. We even saw one case where there's this wise camera that's, that's this hip, cool startup in Seattle, and they're selling this cool device, and it looks like all the Kickstarter stuff. There's an exactly identical device being sold in China, and the Android application is named after that company. So they just forklifted that Chinese product into the U.S. market and branded it. And so we're looking at this future where this, this massive sensor grid has the potential to be command and controlled by a foreign country. And if I was China, I wouldn't want the U.S. owning that infrastructure. If I'm the U.S., I don't want China owning that infrastructure. So it's something that I think is a significant national security concern that we have to start thinking about. Yeah, that was going to be my next question, is how do you sort of force some accountability into this ecosystem? Is it something that the government is going to have to do, whether it's through the FTC or the SEC or, I don't know, some sort of, some sort of other regulatory body that yeah. says, you have to meet a baseline of security if you want to do money. But look, I mean, I, I throw that out there and I understand that there are practical reasons why that isn't or can't happen. So what do we do? <laughs> like, who's accountable? <laughs> I, I think retailers have to take accountability and consumers have to ask the retailers to take accountability. You know, to conduct a security review on, say, the Zmodo camera that we assessed that was the dumpster fire camera, Walmart could do that for a couple thousand bucks just to do a basic security check and the, the number of those devices they're selling it wouldn't change the price at all. I think we also have to th expect that the government should take accountability from a larger scale national security issue. So say at some point, um, again going back to tinfoil hat, say at some point a foreign power did have control over the sensor grid and could turn every thermostat on and off in New York City at the same time and cause the power grid to go down. Like those sorts of big risks are things that only the government can address. I'm not a huge fan of regulation because I think it's slow and, and difficult to do in fast growing tech, but I do think there's a role for government to play. When I look at these devices, I think there are a couple things that we can do that are easy. One is transparency. So when you buy that IoT device off the shelf, is there a way for you to understand what information it's collecting and where it's going? The privacy statements, we're getting ready to release our technical volume of this study, and we reviewed all the privacy statements for all these, and, and they're horrible. Most of them are horrible and, and unspecific. So if you had clarity as a consumer, this is collecting your name, address, birth date, and sending it to overseas, that transparency would be helpful. 
The second is the idea of being able to update these devices. So you buy a smart fridge or a light bulb or a smart outlet and that company goes out of business, you're never getting an update for it again. So how do we think about a construct where is there a common way to update these devices so you can maintain security or or even if you think about that national security issue, if there's a way to mass update these devices to, to protect from a national security issue, that could be beneficial. And then finally, I, I think there's gotta be a way, not necessarily only software, but potentially hardware to be able to have a kill switch on these devices. So to say, the smart fridge is great, but in 10 years it's obsolete, but I still wanna keep my milk cold, so I'm just gonna turn the IoT functional, functionality off and not have to worry about that. So also, how do you think that what is a good way for retailers to communicate something to the masses that something is secure? The reason I ask this is because I have a baby monitor, and the baby monitor that I bought, I legitimately bought it at Target because there was a sticker that said AES-256 yep. encryption. Yeah. I know what that means because of my background. Yeah. Uh, my mom doesn't know what that means. My friends don't know what that means. That, there, I don't think there's ever going to be a point where we talk about encryption standards the same way we talk about like a consumer reports tag. Yeah. So how do we get it to a line of communication with the general public that, okay, product A is secure and here's the stamp of approval, yeah. but product B is not? I think consumers have to ask that question of retailers and right now they're not going to be able to answer that question. And a consumer should say, I'm gonna put my money where I know that I'm gonna get a safe device. The consumers don't read privacy statements and they don't care. You know, they just they get news yeah. from Facebook and yeah. I mean they just they don't care about this stuff. Yeah, and I think and someone's gotta be out there putting a sticker on. Yeah, and I think as a security community we have to find a way to communicate this better to consumers. I, I think I think the discussion of everything's vulnerable, everything can be attacked shuts consumers down. Yeah. But, but I think the discussion of saying Walmart or Target or Best Buy should tell consumers whether a device is secure or not, is designed and deployed in a secure way, is a way to kind of make that more consumable. So if I was a consumer shopping at Walmart and I cared about security, I would expect to see some sort of stamp of approval from Walmart to say, this, this device has undergone testing and this one hasn't. So how do we make, how, do, as, how as a security community, we come up with ways to make this more consumable by consumers? Do you think that there is any way to do it through people's internet connections because I think that look everybody has the network in their homes so what role do you think that somebody like a Verizon or a Comcast or an internet provider plays in this because it is essentially their network and they can do some things on their own that yeah. could take it away from retailers or the consumer altogether. Yeah, so there, there are a number of factors to this. One of the things we did is we did kind of a man-in-the-middle review. And we, we looked at some of these devices were communicating over SSL or TLS, and so they're encryption. The, the sticker that says AES-256, right? Th those, those communications are encrypted. In many cases, those encryptions were implemented in such a way that I can spoof the end server and break the encryption. So the man in the middle piece is, is very concerning. The fact that these guys had done no SSL certificate validation as a part of their process completely just invalidates the encryption piece. So that, that's something that I think somebody in the middle of those communications could say, I'm not gonna allow these sorts of communications to go through. So if they're not implemented in a secure way, they're not gonna happen. The other side of that then is, you know, some of these devices, so, so four of the devices we looked at were manufactured by a company called Mercury. Okay. They are on a platform called Tuya, and Tuya is a group of folks that spun out of Alibaba. 
Okay. So it's a Chinese company. They've just raised like two to three hundred million dollars for this IoT platform. They're getting billions of consumer requests a day. I think the number is like twenty billion consumer twenty billion requests to their infrastructure a day. Wow. Their servers are located in, in AWS. So from a Verizon perspective, I see communications coming from this house to AWS. What can I do as a result? Now, this is where the nuances of security come in. Just because a server's on AWS, does that mean it's secure? No. Right? It, it, it's up to the, the, to the administrators to make sure that that's done in a secure and sound way. And I can log in from China or Russia or anywhere else and pull data off that server. So there's no... There's, there's no correlation of security just because it's an AWS. So how do you manage that problem, I think, is another difficulty. Um, what I would say is we're starting to see, as was evidenced in this research, there are a number of platform providers like Tuya coming into the market. There's another one we saw that's based out of, uh, I think it's St. Louis, called Pepper. Um, and they're doing the same sort of thing. They're a US-based company saying, these devices are insecure. There needs to be somebody in between the device and the consumers to make sure they're secure and protected. And so I think that's one way to start addressing this is to start to say these platform providers consolidate the risk into a single location and we can hold those platform providers accountable for putting in better security. So let's talk about uh, the actual product uh, a little bit. Talking about giving visibility to small and medium-sized companies. How do you have that conversation with someone like a car dealership or a financial advisor that you know is not dealing with that stuff and is like, what what is network visibility? Like, how are you selling them on this is what is important and this is a liability for you in the long yeah. run? So one of the challenges I think any any cybersecurity company has today is is the flood of marketing, and I think a lot of this marketing is not necessarily accurate. Like. You have very creative marketing people that are saying all sorts of great things, and so expecting the consumer to see through that is really hard. Our perspective in the, is to be very straightforward and blunt with the customer and say, look, we're not, we're not trying to stop the APT threats. If somebody stands up a server and has highly trained cyber experts to take you down, you know, they're, they're going to be successful. But what I've seen in my experience is most of the time when I've done incident response and forensics is it's a known threat coming from known bad infrastructure, and the company that was hacked had no visibility into that. And so if you kind of think of this 80-20 rule, how do I come in at a very low price point, very easy to install, I can be up and running in 15 minutes, and I can take that world of known threat and just get rid of it. And so I, I, I kind of one of the analogies I like to use is, you know, from, from back in my, my day when I was with the White House Communications Agency, you'd work events with the president. And okay. so you'd have the Secret Service running security for this event. And do you think the Secret Service would let a known criminal through the door? Probably yeah. not. Right? They're not going to wait for that known criminal to pull out a gun. And so in security, we spend a lot of time thinking about, I'm going to try to detect the threat or detect the bad things. And we're saying, at a, at a much lower price point at speed and scale, I can keep all the known bad stuff out the door for your, your network and protect you. And we're doing a lot of work on the back end to then monitor known threat lists and monitor uh, threat intelligence groups and other things to be able to bring that data in in, in near real time to protect these companies. So the discussion is, we're not trying to do everything. We're just trying to take off the noise, and we're happy to come in. You know, mo Most of our customer engagement start as a, it's really easy to use, and we're willing to prove it. So we'll install it for free. We'll be up and running in 15 minutes. If you like it, keep it. If you don't, get rid of it. And most of the time, people are blown away. You know, There's this, with your Mach 37 experience, there's this price discussion. Like If right. you price it too low, people don't assign value to it. But we found our price point is the right price point for this market as a starting point, but it's very low. 
And so the only way to get over that hurdle is to put it in the hands of the consumers and have them say, wow, this, this does so much better than the, the tools that I'm paying a couple thousand dollars a month for. We like to end this on a random question. Okay. Um, and I believe you're a bourbon man. I am. So it's fair bourbon. What's my favorite bourbon? Yeah. Uh, well, I, I've really, I just recently had the Whistle Pig 10 year oh, that, yeah. I, that I really yeah, yeah. like. I'm a bit, I'm also a big fan of High West Campfire. I like kind of the, the smokiness with it. I like what, the, what High West has done with some of their, the campfire and the double rye. I'm a, I'm a rye guy. That's yeah. awesome. Hey, anytime <laughs> you want to get into a bottle of Whistle Pig, you don't have to, you know, <laughs> you know, I'll, I'll come running. All you right, just, let's do it. Just, all you have to do is literally just whistle. You, know, you, have say, you have to say Whistle Pig, just whistle, and I'll be there for you. So, Vince, really appreciate you uh, getting into the things that you're doing at Dark Cube. Great. Great. Thanks for having me here today. Thanks, Vince. All right. Thanks again to Vince. Jen, it's been a long week. I could use a whistle pig right about now. That sounds like a plan. Have a great weekend, everyone. As always, stay curious.